This Week in HPC. Hot Chips offers deep learning. And the HPC Advisory Council in Brazil. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everybody, and thanks for listening in to another episode of This Week in HPC uh, with Intersect 360 Research. I'm Addison Snell, and that's Michael Feldman. We've been watching your comments on Twitter about us getting proper podcasting headsets, so we're going <laughs> to take that under advisement. You can always tweet us any comments on the podcast itself or the stories at This Week in HPC on Twitter, so uh, happy to have that. But, uh, Michael, we were both at conferences in different parts of the world this week. You were at home here on Hot Chips, and I took off for the HPC Advisory Council in Brazil. Let's start with Hot Chips. Yeah, Hot Chips had an interesting uh, array of sessions, as it always does. This is a time of the year it, it, it always comes out, and they talk about high-end chips and, and even some mobile chips. Uh, this year, there was a lot of talk about deep learning, as we sort of implied in our in our lead-in, uh, there was also some uh, interesting reveals about the Intel Knight's Landing. We should maybe hit that first. All right, yeah, give us the Knight's Landing. Yeah, I mean, Intel obviously has talked about this quite a bit and, and revealed uh, little pieces of it. Uh, they didn't reveal a whole lot more, but they did tell us how many cores are going to be in the new Knight's Landing chip. But they all said it was going to be 60-plus cores. And actually, this time they said there's going to be 72 cores, at least in the in the mainstream version. Up there, 72 equals 60-plus. They were being conservative with 60. Yeah, very conservative. I mean, 30, there's that way it's arranged is 36 tiles. Each of these tiles has a couple of cores. Each core has a couple of vector processing units. So a lot of power, and they're still talking about 3-plus plus teraflops per chip. Uh, which is which is now kind of interesting. With the number of cores revealed, you can sort of figure out how uh, how powerful how, each core is. Yeah, how powerful each one is. And if you do the the simple math involved, those, each of those cores is actually pretty powerful. It comes out to about forty to fifty gigaflops per core, which is essentially on par with a regular Xeon. And, and the knock on the and the Xeon 5s, at least up until now, has been the sort of the single, single thread, single core performance has been weak. It, it's sort of hard to manage that. But now, with this new architecture, based on this new core architecture, uh, they've sort of come up to speed. And the fact that they're going to be offering these as uh, sort of native socket processors without the need for, for a PCI device as an accelerator... Uh, bodes well for their, their core performance now, and now, now they're up like a Xeon. So, uh, sort of a nice reveal and uh, some, uh, some rationale for what they were doing here. Well, you know, that really is in line with what they've been guiding strategically in terms of not really wanting to position Knight's Landing or Xeon Phi as a coprocessor, an accelerator. Right. They're really moving a lot more toward the language of it's a different kind of processor. Uh, and, uh, and this architectural reveal and the power of the individual cores helps position that along the way. In a funny way, it brings them in line with NVIDIA, who a while ago ditched talking about themselves as a graphics chip company and started talking to themselves as a processor company that you know these are processing elements and they can be used in different ways depending on how you architect them and how you program them right and the the advantage intel wants to drive home here is this is an x86 uh platform. In fact, this particular chip they're saying, you don't even have to do a recompile if you if you ha already had a, a Xeon application or a Xeon 
compatible application. You don't even need to recompile. This is actually binary compatible with uh, the Xeon instruction set. Ironically, you'd have to do a recompile if you're on the older uh, Knight's Corner chips. Then you'd have to do that. But So this is a, basically a vanilla uh, ISA-compatible uh, uh, x86, so very attractive to people using that architecture and wanting to move forward with their application of that architecture. So big advantage there. Now, one thing that a lot of the processor companies have been talking about are applications for getting more into this hyperscale space. And the new frontier there has been deep learning. Now, this is something that we've seen primarily among the hyperscale companies so far, Baidu and Microsoft and Google, really taking the lead on a lot of these things. And uh, you heard more about that at Hopchips as well. Right. There were a few... Uh, sessions just on that, on deep learning and convolutional neural networks, the sort of the, the algorithm at the at the center of some of these deep learning uh, platforms, um, and it, it is Baidu has been talking about it a lot. Google, of course, has been talking about it. But behind the scenes, the, the other hyperscalers are probably doing the same thing. They're just not being as public about it. So um, this sort of applies to everybody. Uh, Microsoft, of course, has has sort of gone in a different direction here. We should we should sort of preface this. I mean, GPUs has had a big impact in these deep learning algorithms, especially for the training part. The, the training is very computationally intensive in a way that GPUs are very good for this. Um, so a lot of the the hyperscalers have been using GPU clusters to do the the training portion of it, and then running the actual processing of the neural networks on on more general infrastructure like CPU based. Um, so Google has talked about that. Baidu has talked about that. Microsoft has gone in a different direction. They're um, they're experimenting with FPGAs based on some of the research they've done uh, accelerating their, their Bing search platforms. In fact, they've already deployed that portion of it, not, not a classic uh, deep learning algorithm, but something they've used to accelerate the search. And now they're looking at those same FPGAs and, and uh, sort of related FPGAs to accelerate uh, deep learning training. Um, as well as deep learning processing. So they're high on that. There was a session talking about that. And they think they can get FPGA technology on par with GPUs um, as they look towards the future and and tweak some of the algorithms and uh, just work on the software side of it. So very interesting work going on there and a little bit competition for GPUs for this, this deep learning area. Yeah, it's something where I should say I don't think it's currently a large market, the deep learning uh, in particular right now, but it is viewed as a possible route into a lot of the, the hyperscale companies. And if you can prove yourself on that technology, then you stand a chance to sell a lot more processors uh, for other types of applications. You're talking about companies that buy a billion dollars or more of IT annually. So there's, there's a lot of spending going on. And, and even though it's relatively few companies, I, I do see a lot of competition continuing to go on for, for that space. Yeah, I think for companies like NVIDIA, it actually is already a big opportunity. I mean, they were talking about at the conference, they, they think Google has maybe 8,000 servers with GPUs in it. And not those aren't necessarily even single GPUs, those are multiple GPUs. So 
Um, I'm guessing most of those are, if not all of those, are NVIDIA. So that's a that's a big chunk of revenue for them. Um, obviously, they're not going to refresh those every year, but it, it, it's an ongoing uh, revenue stream. And I think uh, yeah, the reason NVIDIA has been so high on this and so interested in developing this technology. And it's not just the, the chip companies either. I was at the HPC Advisory Council this week, and uh, some of the companies involved there, like Mellanox, are, are also very interested in uh, in these deep neural network kinds of applications and the relationship to the hyperscale markets. Now, NVIDIA and Mellanox, of course, are both linked through the Open Power Foundation, so they see a lot of the same opportunities there. But just wanted to make the point that it goes uh, beyond the chip companies. Yeah, in fact, uh, one of the early developers of neural networks had a, a big talk on which uh, which hardware technologies and which, which companies are interested in, in developing some of these technologies. And it's not, not just Intel, uh, NVIDIA, and some of the other usual suspects. There's actually a bunch of startups that are looking to actually develop convolutional neural network uh, chips themselves uh, orient yeah, towards that. We've seen some of them. I mean, it's a big enough potential opportunity that uh, uh, the, that it, it represents a huge total available market if you can catch one customer. Exactly. And, and the growth potential is very high there. So, they, uh, you know, attracting investors is, is uh, you know, there's a lot, obviously a lot of competition for that, but certainly the growth potential is such that investors are looking at this area for some big returns. So, you talked a little bit about the different architectures and, and platforms that people are looking at, but uh, right now it's basically, you know, sort of a battle between the GPUs and uh, FPGAs, but there could be some uh, more proprietary uh, platforms coming on board and, you know, over the next several years. So, interesting developments there. One other thing we should mention, or that I think I'd like to mention, there was a, a talk on uh, uh, ARM 64-bit ARM by not a well-known Chinese chipmaker called Phytium Technology. Now, there's a number of chipmakers in China that have bought licenses, I think, for 64-bit ARM. Um, these guys have... Uh, they don't have a, a product yet, but they're developing two versions uh, for the server market, uh, calling them Earth, Earth and Mars. They're, they're two different things. One of them is sort of a scale-out architecture, and one of them is a scale-up for, for sort of these uh, the mainframe versus you know the, the big cluster market. Um, but it's interesting. They they're they're well along in their development process. They they revealed some of the some of the technical details, but but not too much at this point. But I think the interesting thing here is that I think we're going to see a lot more Chinese uh, chip manufacturers or chip designers going for the ARM side since it's easy enough to buy a license. And since the U.S. Um, has sort of forced the hand here in, in developing uh, domestic uh, processors to China, I mean, they were already on that road, but now even more so because they're going to be limited on uh, what, uh, what the U.S. can export as far as like some of the supercomputing uh, spaces in, in certain areas. You know, that is interesting and, and still highlights the, the idea that there there is an opportunity here as the market shifts for more of these new entrants with uh, particular technologies to go target a specific application and say, you know what, I've got a better solution that goes and does that application. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we're going to see a variety of architectures in, in China still, and, and still x86, obviously. There's a lot of the uh, server makers there that are dependent upon that for things that are less than you know, sort of defense-related supercomputing and, and things that are more sensitive. But um, China's already going down this path. They want to develop their own technology, their own domestic technologies for a lot of these critical technologies. And uh, things like ARM and, and open power now give them a couple of a couple of paths to do that. I think uh, we're going to see that accelerate the next few years. It does, and it, and it shows to it shows the maturation of the HPC industry in China that it's creating these opportunities for these new technologies, where the the, the primary market for them is going to be domestic within China, and, and then we'll see how much they do exporting it. Yep. Well, Michael, thanks for the report from Hot Chips. I always like getting that look ahead at uh, what's coming up down the pike. Meanwhile, uh, I was exploring what's going on with HPC in Latin America as the HPC Advisory Council was having its uh, newest meeting in Brazil. Yeah, I was looking at the uh, the agenda there. I was glad to have you there. It, was, it looks like a very interesting lineup. It's always interesting to see what's happening in Latin America. We don't hear much about it in general, Europe and, and North America being sort of the big centers. Um, so it's it would probably be nice to see some users there, uh, Brazil and, and elsewhere in Latin America, and then talking about what uh, what they're doing and interested in the technology coming coming online. You know, it, it was interesting. This uh, conference was in Petropolis, where I haven't been before. It's about an hour outside of Rio, if you get lucky enough with the traffic. It's up in the mountains above Rio. It, was, it rains all, quite a bit there and didn't disappoint this time. It, it was raining quite a lot. Uh, but nice to see a different location uh, in Brazil. And as you were talking about the uh, getting the users involved in addition to the vendors, this was in conjunction with the Carla 2015 HPC in Latin America conference. It was highlighting a lot of the not only research areas, but we were talking uh, quite a bit at the conference about the expansion of HPC into uh, non-research-oriented markets. And uh, some of the discussions I had with end users lead me to believe that the finance vertical market in Brazil might be uh, bigger than it is even in Mexico, that this could be the dominant area for, uh, for HPC in Brazil and for finance within Latin America. Oh, that's interesting to hear because usually the only thing you hear out of when you do hear about Latin American applications is the research side. Of course, they're, they'd be more apt to, to talk about research since it's a more open community. But yeah, it's interesting to hear about the commercial side of it with something that's uh, that's not very publicly visible. Well, there are you know other uh, non-academic sites that we hear about. Uh, InPay, of course, sure. is, the, is the the big is the NASA equivalent and right. uh, the biggest uh, system on the top 500 list within Brazil, but then you also have Embraer in, in manufacturing, Petrobras in, in oil and gas, but uh, getting a little more visibility on the finance side would be interesting. And then aside from that, the HPC Advisory Council always does a good job reaching out to students. Uh, this is critically important in our industry, trying to get more of the youth uh, on an ongoing basis, keeping the industry pushing forward. Yeah, it looks like there were some interesting sessions on exascale. was a hot topic and becoming hotter now as we as we approach uh, sort of the end of the decade. Uh, it looks like there were two or two or three sessions on either exascale or or just next generation HPC. 
it, it really was. Uh, after I gave our, our four newest forecast report that did talk about the growth in these business computing application areas and where we see Latin America, uh, the conversation really did heat up on Exascale. I was part of a panel toward the end of the day with some of the other speakers on on the challenges uh, moving forward to Exascale. And, uh, you know, a, lo a lot of talk uh, came up in some of the presentations about the U.S. executive order, which we talked about uh, on our This Week in HPC podcast previously, uh, looking at uh, uh, looking at revitalizing or, or just vitalizing for the first time, uh, uh, codifying a U.S. plan toward Exascale. But, you know, where, where does that sit relative to Japan, relative to France, relative to China and Russia, uh, all of which are, are in the conversation? And I think there's a, a general acknowledgement, or at least uh, I was trying to point out through some of the other presentations, that whereas we've seen some hardware-specific roadmaps and, and talk about how we get to Exascale, although I think the power is still obviously an issue, uh, that really some of the more dominant um, challenges are still going to be on, on the software side. Yeah, I think uh, I think that is now the conventional wisdom. The software was sort of going to be the limiting factor, and the the more uh, resource intensive uh, uh, thing that's going to go on to get the extra scale as far as as far as paying for this thing. So, yeah, good to see those. You know, that exposure in Latin America will probably you know lag, you know, North America and Europe somewhat in getting these larger systems. But obviously, there's going to be a lot of interest there. They're just moving sort of into the, the petascale era in some of their bigger systems, but certainly they're interested in exascale as much as anybody else. They have the same types of problems, uh, large-scale problems, that uh, is going to require some of these larger-scale systems. Yeah, and speaking of petascale, this meeting was held at the Laboratorio Nacional de Computation Scientifica, LNCC, in Petropolis, and they're headed toward petascale capability overall there. They had some new bull systems. They're just now coming online. Uh, these are uh, the mobile deployments in the containerized uh, form factor. They've started with two containers side by side, uh, so two rows of bull systems uh, racked together. These are um, uh, a mix of processing nodes. They're based predominantly on the uh, Intel Ivy Bridge technology, but uh, some of the nodes are also accelerated with Knight's Landing. Uh, others uh, have uh, the NVIDIA Tesla accelerators. It's all connected with FDR and Finiband, and they've got two petabytes of uh, luster uh, storage from Seagate as part of it. And these mobile containers are, are interesting. They're, they're hooking up the, the power and the plumbing now it's all hot water cooled. Uh, they're they're really looking forward to bring all this new capability online there. Yeah, that'll be a, a big improvement for them at a uh, big petascale system at that at that center. I'm sure we'll get a lot of demand uh, and and be a, a big uh, feather in the cap of the research community there. Uh, the, the big question, of course, becomes what are we running on it? Uh, as we were talking about that software for, for Exascale, we even started out with the, the big question about what's the difference between Exaflop and Exascale. And a lot of people really use those synonymously, but if you'd like them to be different, my favorite definition comes from our own colleague, Chris Willard, who says the, the real definition of Exascale at least ought to be it's an Exaflop with an application that runs on 
on it. Uh, and if you want them to, to be different things, then, then that's what they should be. And that was really at the heart of DK Panda's keynote, where he was looking at programming models for Exascale, the potential of bringing in some PGAS functionality into MPI so that we can really program these things effectively. Yeah, well, I think that's a very user-friendly way to look at it. I mean, that's that's what the users are interested in. They're interested in getting the performance. They don't care about how how big the uh, theoretical performance of a system is. They uh, they have to pay for that, but uh, they they want the uh, they want the capability out of this thing. So. Uh, I know we've already got a long podcast here, Michael, but I, I want to sneak in one interesting announcement. You notice they've named the keynote speaker for SC15, speaking of speakers. Right, or right. Speaking I, of supercomputing, I should say. <laughs> speaking of supercomputing, yeah, I, I noticed that too. It's it's Alan Alda, somebody I think well known, uh, <laughs> at least everybody in the U.S., for his, his long uh, theatrical and TV career. And movie career, so he's uh, he's been involved in a lot of uh, science areas over the years, and now they're they're tapping him for the uh, keynote at SC. Very interesting pick. I guess he's a science buff, which yeah. I wasn't aware of. He's, of course, iconically known as Hawkeye Pierce from the uh, long-running TV series MASH when he was younger. Are they implying that we need a MASH unit for supercomputing? <laughs> well, actually, he's he's had a, a pretty long... It's, I mean, the career after MASH has been a little more low-key, but he was a host of a TV series, Scientific American Frontiers, as well as some uh, PBS miniseries specials that focused on science. So he's, he's well-versed in sort of the science areas, and he, I've seen him on some of these programs, and he is uh, quite up to speed on this, and I'll, it'll be interesting to see how he talks about supercomputing HPC. I have a feeling he's going to do his research and uh, say some pretty interesting things. I, I most recently saw him on the big screen as a crooked financier in the comedy <laughs> Tower Heist, so yeah, I he's bringing supercomputing to finance that way, too. Yeah, it'll be it'll be fun. Uh, it's it's a nice, uh, interesting pick, and it's something that I think attracts people outside the community to this conference, and, and that'll be a good thing as well. Well, kidding aside, that does really help bringing the attention in. I remember when we had Al Gore as a keynote, right. who was you know right at the zenith of a lot of the attention he was getting around uh, climate modeling and global warming. So you're right. We'll see uh, uh, what Alan Alda can help shine light on for us here. So yeah, fun time ahead. That's just a couple months away, but uh, lots of stuff to go on before that as we uh, as we head out of summer and into autumn. All right, Michael, good stuff this week. Thanks for uh, another great podcast, and thanks to you for listening. You've been listening to This Week in HPC. You've been listening to This Week in HPC. 